so Americans in the world did know that something huge and insane and something that totally new in the history of warfare had been used in Hiroshima. What they really didn't know was the extent to which this is the bomb that kept on killing long after detonation. Leslie M.M. Bloom is an award-winning journalist and New York Times best-selling author. Her book, Fallout, tells the story of how American war correspondent John Hersey helped expose the deadliest government cover-up of the 20th century, the true effects of the nuclear bombs detonated over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This is the Sperber Prize Podcast, a show where I'll talk to winners and nominees of the annual award given by Fordham University in honor of author Anne M. Sperber and her remarkable biography of Edward R. Murrow. The Sperber Prize seeks to promote outstanding biographies and memoirs, detailing the unseen backgrounds to some of history's biggest stories in print and electronic journalism. I'm your host, Kevin Denine. Joining me today is award-winning journalist, historian, and New York Times best-selling author, Leslie M.M. Bloom. She is also the author of Sperber Prize winner, Fallout, the Hiroshima cover-up, and the reporter who revealed it to the world. Leslie, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm okay, considering. Mm-hmm. All things considered? Yes. So let's get just right into the background of the book a little bit and why you wanted to write it. So can you just give a little overview what it's about and what really drew you to it? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, it might seem um, ironic given everything that's happening right now in you know the current nuclear landscape, but I originally did not come at the book through the nuclear angle. Um, initially, I came at it through the journalism angle because it was you know in 2015 and 2016 that I was trying to figure out what my next book was going to be, and this also coincided with the rise of Trump and you know just in the lead up to the 2016 election, and we were seeing these what then felt like shocking an unprecedented attacks on the American press. Um, and, you know, I'm from a press background. You know, I, I grew up in a newsroom, literally, partly grew up in a newsroom. My dad was Walter Cronkite's producer and writer. And, you know, I went into newsrooms when I was still in college for internships. And, you know, I married a journalist. The journalism world is my world. And uh, journalists are my tribe. And it was so horrible to see these designations of our free press and our journalists as, quote, enemies of the people. I mean, what is this Stalinist? language being directed at, at the press corps by this insane presidential candidate, failed talk show host. And I mean, it was just, and, and so it just, it was a, a rallying cry for me, um, fallout to remind readers, help remind readers of the power and the, the unbelievably crucial importance of our free press and what was at stake in protecting the free press from this onslaught from within. Your book goes into John Hersey's story, which sort of uncovered the truth of what happened at Hiroshima because the government had been sort of hiding it up to that point. Not sort of. I mean, like very emphatically with enormous effort covering up the true nature of the the radioactive fallout in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And for, you know, for that matter, the Trinity test site in New Mexico. The bomb was dropped August 6th, 1945. Over a year later, Hersey's story comes out. What was the American perception before his story was released? Well, you know, it's interesting because I call the story of the bombing of Hiroshima and then to a slightly lesser extent, Nagasaki, the most covered story of the war, but also the most covered up. 
you know, because it wasn't a secret that the Americans had dropped this then experimental mega weapon on Hiroshima. I mean, President Harry Truman announced it, you know, with great fanfare, actually. This was a, a bomb that was a new a new thing and it harnessed the powers of the sun. I mean, there was like this biblical language that he used to describe it. And it's the equivalent to 20,000 tons of TNT, I mean, which was like unheard of at the time. And um, so Americans in the world did know that something huge and insane and something that totally new in the history of warfare had been used in Hiroshima. But, you know, what they what they really didn't know was the extent to which this is the bomb that kept on killing long after detonation. And, you know, I mean, to be fair, I mean, a lot of the scientists who helped create the bomb didn't really understand the true nature of the bomb that they had created. But, you know, it became very quickly obvious that the effects of radiation were killing people for days and weeks and months and years after the bombs had dropped. And the U.S. was not particularly jazzed to have the rest of the world find out that this is how they ended their morally righteous war. You know, they took completely compromised the, the, the moral high ground of their victory against vicious uh, enemies. And not only that, they're about to put tens of thousands of American and allied troops into occupied Japan, including Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so that's not a good look, right? So they sent a team in and, you know, they, they cleared the, the, the atomic cities very quickly. Um, you could live there forever, General Leslie Groves, the head of the Manhattan Project said. In go the troops. Um, also quietly in go, you know, a small fleet of American scientists and military figures to start studying Japanese victims of the bombing so they can see the true, they can start to really understand for the first time the true effects of the radioactive qualities of their bombs. And they're, they're studying these guys for years afterwards. So they were, they, the Japanese victims of Hiroshima and Nagasaki really were essentially guinea pigs. Obviously coverage along the way, you said it was like the most covered story in history, but not covered in the right way initially. Initially, yeah. What did it look like for the Japanese and American press that was there before Hersey came? First of all, it depends on when you got there. The Japanese press knew fast um, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki that this was something new under the sun and completely horrific. And they were ironically actually restricted from reporting on it at first by their own government. Um, you know, because they hadn't surrendered yet, they made it sound like um, it was just more firebombing, uh, you know, which had already decimated more than 60 cities in Japan. But then, you know, an, uh, initial reports came out. And so first there was a Japanese American reporter who got into Hiroshima. His mom had lived there. He went to try to find her. He was shocked by what he saw. I mean, it was a city of 300,000 people that had been completely eviscerated. It looked like a, a an ashtray, he said. Um, he had found his mom and uh, she had been on the outskirts of the city and miraculously had survived. But, you know, he had managed to get a, a, a report to AP out about, you know, the devastated city. And so, you know, Associated Press, it's a wire service. And so it runs newspapers across the America and around the world. You know, he pulled no punches also. I mean, he, he really laid out the devastation and he said that there was a sinister, like they, they thought it was gas at that point. They didn't understand, you know, that it was radiation. Um, he said that something sinister was killing off survivors. Um, and, you know, but you know, interestingly, as American publications, including the New York Times, only read an abbreviated version of that and omitted references to the radioactive after effects. Uh, another reporter got in, one of my favorites, Wilfred Burchett. He was this incredibly scrappy war correspondent, Australian, and he he got out a mega report that ran in the London Express that said, you know, this is um, the atomic plague. 
and you know th- so that that ran in full um, around the world, and then after that, attempt you know reporters who had, who had gotten into Nagasaki and Hiroshima um, were their their reports were intercepted. Um, the, the cities were made restricted areas by the occupying forces, which took over very quickly. And after that point, after those two very damaging initial reports, which again took place in, in you know within 30 days of the bombings, um, after those damaging reports, the press clamped down on both the Japanese press and the American press was near total. Was it because the government was sort of trying to just maintain their image? I think it was a combination of factors. You know, as we said, one of the, the former Secretary of War had said, you know, we don't want to be seen as having outdone Hitler in atrocities. And, you know, and he was already referring to just the firebombing of, of Tokyo and, and other Japanese cities. This was even before, you know, they, they knocked out Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killing hundreds of thousands of, of civilians. Um, you know, so that was already a concern that was really in the minds of American military and uh, political leaders. Um, and again, we have our allied troops very much on the ground in these places. I mean, there were thousands of American soldiers who were based in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in some in some cases, you know, right near ground zero of the respective bombings. And, you know, soldiers would go and, and take selfies at the respective ground zeros. I mean, it was they were living in the fallout zone. They were in, interacting with the fallout zone. It was a tricky thing for the U.S government because on the one hand you know they did want to downplay you know the atrocity aspect of the bombing but on the other hand they wanted to upplay the fact that they had this incredibly destructive weapon unprecedented weapon and nobody else did especially the soviets you know they really wanted the soviet to know the full extent of their bombs so in those early days it was a constant tug of war like how much do we reveal and amp up about the destructiveness of the weapon and how much do we play down about how horrific it really is is, again, in its aftermath. And then along comes John Hersey, who was a correspondent for Time Life. Yes, well, initially, but he's freelance by the time he is reporting in Japan. And then he took on this role for The New Yorker, which was originally a humor publication with a smaller readership. Why was he sort of the right person to get this done? I understand that there were clearances he had to get to get into Japan. How did he fit the criteria? It was the right man in the right place at the right time. And, you know, obviously luck always plays into these things, right? Uh, you know, who you're interacting with to, to get access to these places. And so, you know, as you said, Hersey had been a war correspondent for a time and also wrote for life through the war, 1939 forward. He'd seen many different theaters of combat. He'd seen concentration camps. He'd seen it all until the bombs came. And he knew when he first heard the reporting of the bombs, he was actually based in the States when he heard, heard about Hiroshima. He knew that it was something totally different from what he had seen despite all of this exposure during the war. And he knew he was going to report on it. He just didn't know, you know, in what capacity at that point. He's an interesting candidate because he had grown up in Asia. He had been the child of missionary parents. You know, so he, he knew Asia and he always was enough of an outsider, both within Asia and within America, that, that observer status, that outsider status is very handy for journalists. It makes him, again, just a very shrewd choice to go in. It means maybe he's never really buying in entirely to whatever side he's covering. That said, you know, one thing that gave him a significant advantage is, you know, during the war, he had done very flattering coverage of the U.S. military. Um, he was a commended war hero. He had even, when he was in uh, in Asia, come under Japanese fire while he was embedded with a with a Marine unit and helped evacuate a wounded Marine and, and got a commendation. When you were researching it, you had sort of 
first person access to his notes, his first drafts. What did that kind of look like? How did it seem like he pieced it together? First of all, all of his papers are at Yale at Biden Keys Library. Well, you know, it's interesting because Hersey was pretty reticent. I mean, he he was he did not put himself into the public eye, but for somebody who was that reticent, he really did save everything. It was quite quite a paper trail for himself. So he knew what he had done was of um, historic significance and that there would be people like me, you know, that would, would eventually try to piece together the narrative of how he had told that story. It's worth saying that when he actually did get into Japan and get into Hiroshima, which he got access because he was seen as a team player with the U.S. military and not a threat, um, his approach was that he interviewed many survivors, uh, survivor witnesses of, of the Hiroshima bombing, and then told the story of six regular everyday people, you know, a mother, a priest, you know, two doctors, um, their young children. So one of the things I wanted to find right away was his notes from those interviews. Um, those notes are not among his papers. I don't know where they are. He likely did take notes. His protagonist later said that he did, and he likely did them in shorthand because we know that he he did learn shorthand when he was working for Sinclair Lewis and probably used them for reporting for years. Um, I was also interested to know how well he had um, recounted the experience of the Japanese and, and one German um, victims. And they later, some of them later said that he had recounted everything with extreme accuracy. So that was great. Um, but there were a lot of other clues among his papers, you know, scraps of paper that he had put with co different contacts and different addresses and that sort of thing. And so I had a very strong research associate and we were constantly piecing together, you know, what could this address mean? Oh, what, what does he mean when he scribbled down on the back of his envelope, Radio Tokyo? Oh, that's that's where the Allied press corps had you know, had taken over and occupied that building and, and put out all their dispatches, that kind of thing. So there were, it was, it was a lot of um, assembling of a, of a puzzle, which was, you know, in my nerdy world is like the most fun you could possibly have. Um, and, you know, he also had in his paper something that was incredibly helpful to me. And it was the handwritten and typewritten diary of one of his primary protagonists, Reverend Kiyoshi uh, Tanamoto, who detailed in excruciating detail what had happened on the day of and the days after and in the weeks and months after. Um, and I became friends with his his daughter, Koko Tanamoto, who's also in the book. Um, and, you know, between those two items, I was able to piece together without simply just relying on Hersey's narrative, you know, what had what had happened on that day in, in Hiroshima, the day of the bombing. You mentioned Hersey liked to stay out of the spotlight. He was definitely a journalist, not a celebrity. But when his article was released, it sort of catapulted him into a level of fame maybe he wasn't anticipating. How was his perception publicly just sort of around the world after its release? You know, as you say, I mean, he became a mega celebrity. There was some survey that, that came out. I can't remember who conducted it off the top of my head, but it was a service that puts out the top 10 celebrities of the year. And John Hersey's on it, along with like the, the biggest movie stars and political leaders around the world. And you know, there he is. Um, and, you know, I think for Hersey, it was always a struggle I don't think he he craved visibility ever, but I think he did crave accomplishment and achievement. And then there's also the journalistic tension too of not being the center of your own story. And Hersey is really noticeably absent from his storytelling in Hiroshima, which is incredibly admirable because, you know, in generations of journalists that follow, you know, like Tom Wolfe and Norman Mailer, I mean, these, these guys are like in their stories. It's like, you know, jazz hands in the center of their stories. Um, Hersey was not that person, but I think actually that, 
you know, his, his extreme fame that came out of Hiroshima, writing the, the story Hiroshima really rattled him. He was always well-connected. He was always well-known. He was always well-respected, but he wasn't a man about town in the way that subsequent journalists are going to be. It kind of went underground. Um, he's predominantly known after that um, or predominantly works on uh, novels. He decides that storytelling can be done better through art or make a bigger impact through, through art and through fictionalization than through through nonfiction, which is the great irony of his career because he remained best known for his reporting in Hiroshima forever afterwards. Nobody really knows his novels now. Um, so I, I think in terms of how he was regarded around the world, look, I mean, he shocked the world with this revelation. He got the world to pay attention to an issue that nobody wanted to pay attention to. People were exhausted after the war. They didn't have any bandwidth for a mega atrocity story. It's a year later. They now have the attention span again. And then they were like, oh, oh my God, this is actually what it really means to live in the atomic age. And it wasn't just for the worldwide audience, you know, the revelation of what it had been like to be in Hiroshima. It was like the realization that this could happen to anybody because guess what? Now you can attach nukes to missiles. Um, you know, so it was like the major wake up call about what an existential threat it really um, had become. You know, so obviously that's not going to be universally well-regarded. It's unwelcome news, right? You know, whether you're in, in, in Ohio or Tokyo or London or wherever, it's like all of a sudden you're completely susceptible. Um, so there's some kill the messenger, you know, anger directed to her, towards Hersey. But for the most part, most people, according to polls anyway, um, you know, saw him as having done an enormous public service. People were grateful for the reporting. I mean, for some Americans, they felt that part of why they had fought the war was to help maintain freedom of information, you know, the right to be informed. And um, Hersey's reporting had showed why that was so unbelievably important because, I mean, who wants to be oblivious to the kinds of existential threats that are facing them? And Hersey had uncovered that particular threat and had uncovered the fact that there had been a cover-up surrounding it. So it was, uh, you know, there, there was both anger towards him, but also immense appreciation and respect directed towards him. I like you mentioned that he kind of scooped the world, which he really did. It was obviously an international story. It was amazing, the scoop, though, because it was low-lying fruit, wasn't it? Again, it was a huge, huge story, but nobody else had picked it up in the way that he had. They, people had moved on. Journalists had moved on from that story. They literally called Hiroshima just a couple of months later. It's an old story. Nobody wants to hear about it anymore. And, you know, Hersey and his editors are like, well, actually, no, nobody has covered it properly. And that that's the thing. So you get this frenzy of initial coverage, and then the press corps moves on, and it takes somebody like Hersey to come in and scoop the world. And because you see that actually no, you know, the, the real story or the full story hasn't been told yet and, and we're, we're going to tell it, you know, whether we end up having an audience for it or not. And they really had the audience. You mentioned that some of your research I saw was actually in Russian because there was such an impact as the world moved into the Cold War and the Soviets were trying to militarize their nuclear arsenal. Can you talk a bit about just Hiroshima's impact on nuclear powers and sort of the tensions that created. Yes, to start at the beginning of the question, um, you know, part of the research was done in Russian, um, not by me. I don't speak or read Russian, um, but I had, a, again, a really powerful research associate who was my Russian translator and a co-researcher. And through some papers at the New York Public Library, I learned that uh, you know Russia was not that psyched about Hersey's Hiroshima. 
um, for different reasons than the U.S. wasn't psyched. The U.S. isn't psyched because, you know, it deprives them of moral high ground, right? Um, Russia's not psyched because Hershey's Hiroshima very painfully demonstrates the power of a weapon that the U.S. has, but the Soviets don't. They don't want their populations to read Hersey's report for different reasons. They don't want them to get alarmed. They don't want them to see the Soviets as being at a disadvantage. So they actually send their own propagandistic reporter to Nagasaki, who then writes a counter story where he basically says that John Hersey made everything up and that, you know, the, the, the nuclear threat is a total American fake and Hersey's a spy and all this stuff. I mean, it was shocking. Um, you can debate Hersey's role in the nuclear landscape since the story came out. You could debate that role to the end of days. I mean, some people think that he played a really, including him, he thought he played quite an important role in deterrence. Um, not necessarily him personally, but the testimonies that he he secured. He said that one of the things that has kept the world safe from subsequent nuclear attack is the memory of what happened at Hiroshima. Now he's the one who documented the most lasting testimonies, the most constantly, still constantly read testimonies of what happened in Hiroshima. And in that sense, his book, his article turned book really contributed to what we call today the nuclear taboo. You know, it made it a lot harder for leaders to just reach for the nuclear weapons as part of a regular arsenal and use them in a in sort of a more cavalier, casual way. Whereas if people really didn't have that strong a sense of what it had been like to be on the receiving end of nuclear warfare, we probably would have seen uses of nuclear weapons in the in the in the conflict since. I mean, obviously that's being really challenged right now in the Ukraine war. Um, you know, people are, you know, many experts are incredibly worried that the nuclear taboo may be over, that Putin doesn't care about the nuclear taboo, um, you know, that the message of Hiroshima is not effective as a deterrent right now or may not be effective. And this is the first time since World War II that these are really palpable, urgent concerns. Um, so we'll, we'll see. I mean, this is the testing moment that Hersey feared that nuclear experts since have feared, this is it. This is, the, this is the moment that we've been leading up to. Do you think since Hersey's story came out, journalism has changed in its ability to impact memory? Is that part of the reason the taboo is fading because journalism as a whole has changed or has it just been too much time? It's a really complicated question. You know, journalism has changed a lot, but it still does have the ability to make an incredibly powerful impact. But also people are picking and choosing their facts right now in a way that's incredibly scary. Um, and that's its own existential threat, you know, the ability to, to opt into to misinformation. Um, you know, but we have seen in the in recent years the ability of journalism to create enormous social movements. So for instance, like Me Too reporting, the initial reporting on Harvey Weinstein, which you know completely gave rise to the Me Too movement and has changed. Well, I mean, we'll see how much it's changed, but it's definitely created an enormous historic moment. But, you know, at the same time, like the idea that an article could come out in The New Yorker now and change the world the way that Hersey's story changed the world. I mean, I don't I don't know if it, if it would have the same impact. It, it, it could. But I think the media in universe has really atomized considerably. So, you know, people are reading very different sources of information. I would say the biggest challenge really in terms of the media landscape, misinformation and combating it. That's because there's so much information right now versus before it was kind of 
more like what is the government releasing? You think now it's because there's just so much news and people are choosing what they want to believe? I think that's because there's so many different news sources right now. And I think that also there's just an enormous amount of disinformation that's being put out by really powerful news organizations, um, both both central and fringe. Um, and people are self-curating their information in a way that they, they just didn't, at least to this extent, in the post-war, immediate post-war environment. Um, but, you know, that said, I mean, there's always going to be the obligation of journalists who have the platform that Hersey had to report to the best of their abilities. And if you're sitting on a story like Hersey was sitting on to get it out there, no, you know, no matter what. And, you know, at least in the time of this interview, we still have incredibly powerful legacy publications that can make a huge impact. Like if you publish a report like that in the New York Times, you know, which is still, you know, whether you like it or not, the paper of record, you can have some pretty thunderous impact like you'll, you'll definitely get a message across you know whether it ends up impacting policy is a totally a totally different thing and you might also you know even if you're reporting even if even if like let's say you're getting to 90 percent of the american population through a report that comes out in the times you still have to steal yourself for the fact that 30 percent of the, the population may reflexively just dismiss it as quote unquote fake news I just wanted to touch on your research a bit more. You mentioned that the book could have been a thousand pages, but you ended up cutting it down to where it's at now. If there's anything, like, is there anything that sticks out to you that didn't end up making it that you would have liked in it? Look, my first draft was like bananas long. And, you know, my editor, who was vicious and cruel, but I love him, uh, with, you know, really was very, very fierce and stern about it. His whole thing is about a propulsive narrative and you know you, you can't deliver information to your readers unless they're really engaged with what they read and so it has to be consuming and I, and I really um, have learned a lot from him over the two books that we've done together about how unbelievably important that was and you know so as painful as it is to make cuts um, you I really now believe that it was completely in service of the of the bigger mission of the book. Um, and when you're publicizing a book like Fallout, and I'm also a journalist as well as a book historian, and you know, there's the opportunity to write about in articles and uh, other formats, the stuff that you left on the cutting room floor. So that stuff never um, doesn't get used and it always informs the narrative even when it's, when it's not blatantly stated in, in the book. You know, my first book was about Ernest Hemingway and his then revolutionary approach to both fiction and nonfiction alike is what he calls the tip of the iceberg, where you're just really revealing a little bit of what you know, but there's a mammoth body underneath the water. And in this case, a mammoth, you know, amount of research and facts that didn't get onto the final page, but they still inform the feeling of the book. Um, so it took me a while and a, quite a bit of struggle to get to the point where I would feel comfortable with sacrificing that much in service of the narrative. But now it is the kind of writer that I am. And I will never be what we call the completest academic writer again. What was it like for you as a journalist getting to go kind of retrace his steps, go to Hiroshima? You met one of his main characters, right? How did that impact you as a person? Did you feel you came out differently? Yeah, I mean, look, going to Hiroshima was really, I don't want to say life-changing, but it was, um, Hiroshima for me is like one of the most psychically disturbing places I've ever been. And, you know, it's a vibrant, rebuilt city. When I was there a few years ago, it was, you know, 3 million people in the prefecture, you know, so it, it looks, you if you walked in there you would, and you didn't know the history because 
I don't know how you wouldn't know the history, but you would have no, no idea that it had been the site of nuclear holocaust. There are Starbucks, McDonald's. I mean, they're, it's like very well serviced by American industry. I'll definitely say that. It's hotels. I mean, they have like a baseball team that everybody's really psyched about. I mean, it's regular life. You see school kids in your uniforms going to school and parents with briefcases. And it's just, it's like a regular city. But for me, you know, because I really do know what happened there. It's like, I didn't eat and drink practically or sleep the whole time that I was there. Cause I just, I just couldn't, it was just, you, you just, you know, what's in the ground there and you know what happened there. And, you know, I interviewed the, the governor of um, Hiroshima prefecture who's based in the city. And, you know, he said, one of the first things he said in our interview is it's essentially, it's a graveyard. It's never been properly excavated. So all of this that you see built here, I mean, whenever we build a new development you dig a few feet and there are bones. You know, so it's literally built on the bones of people who died in that in that nuclear attack. Um, and it was, you know, really harrowing. And, you know, despite the fact that it's been rebuilt to a certain extent, um, there are still parts of it that are, um, you know, they, they've left a couple of structures that were destroyed, partly destroyed by the bombing so people could see what it was like. Um, and there's also a, a sort of a manicured, beautiful Japanese garden that um, had been a destination for survivors who had like dragged themselves out of the city. Um, I won't describe in this podcast what, what it had looked like in, in those moments. But what, you know, when I walked through it, it was you know a beautiful like people took wedding pictures there again. Um, but then you, you you walk in a little bit and there's a plaque that says, oh, by the way, in the 1980s, when we planted this, we found 80 bodies. There's no place in the city that's not a graveyard. Um, so it was a, hor a horrible and difficult experience to go, um, but it was also extremely necessary. Like you can't write this book without without going there. So I did. Well, thank you for sharing. I really appreciate your account and um, I don't know, taking the time to put this story together. It's an important story for people to know, I think. Well, I'm really glad to, that you read it and thank you for, for highlighting it on your podcast. And, you know, I really hope that people your age read Hersey's work because it has to be, there has to be an awareness of this. I mean, look, Ukraine has changed everything. Everybody's aware of the nuclear threat again. But two months ago, we were having this conversation. I would have been saying there has to be more awareness of the nuclear existential threat among your generation um, because right now it's being ignored and it's going to pop up and everybody's going to not know what to do. Well, lo and behold, that's where it is right now. But um, I think if we come out of Ukraine unscathed by any nuclear issues, the more people your age who remain uh, re-engaged with the issue, again, the more it becomes a political issue and the more we have, you know, better policies directed towards containing the nuclear threat. So thanks for reading it. Absolutely. Tune into the next episode of the Sperber Prize podcast for my conversation with Ivor Rosen about his book, Ticking Clock, Behind the Scenes at 60 Minutes. Special thanks to our guest, Leslie Bloom, Fordham University, and the Sperber Prize Committee for making this show possible. For more information about the Sperber Prize, you can visit our website at sperberprize.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I will talk to you soon.